Hi, and welcome to Seen and Unseen Aloud. As we draw near the end of the year, the team here at Seen and Unseen Aloud have taken a look back over favourite articles that have appeared either on the Seen and Unseen Aloud podcast or on the Seen and Unseen website. Sit back and enjoy a curated stroll down memory lane and see if we've chosen your top picks. This week's Christmas compilation has been selected by Nick Jones, senior editor of Seen and Unseen. He says, One of the earliest articles we published on Seen and Unseen was Elizabeth Wainwright's A Place on Earth. Her evocative writing is grounded in all senses in where she lives, among the red soil fields of rural Devon. She explores the power of places and their people to root each one of us to encourage us to play our part in the ongoing incarnation of love. A Place on Earth by Elizabeth Wainwright I hoped it would be a David and Goliath story. Big national developers, small local community, the community wins, the developers leave town. Instead, the application of almost 300 uninspired and loveless houses passed, despite concerns over affordability, wildlife enhancement and lack of green infrastructure. As an elected district councillor, I spoke my concerns alongside residents. Some improvements were made, but the story is now a familiar one. The planning committee recognised the concerns, but felt their hands were tied. If they refused permission, the wealthy developer would appeal and probably win, and our district council would have to pay costs from its ever-dwindling budget. Developers are invested financially in a place, but not relationally or ecologically. The land becomes a blank canvas. The otters, oaks and fertile soils are an inconvenience, which can be replaced with some token tree planting and back boxes afterwards. In the name of development, a slippery idea that is often interpreted as profit rather than value. The layers of the place of farming and memory of community and care and stories through seasons are invisible to distant developers, but not to those who have eyes to see. I have been trying to see the layers in these Devon lands where the soils are red and where the farmers are still buried deep in their valleys, in undateable cobbled farms, connected by the inexplicable Devonshire high-banked, deep-cut lanes, as poet Ted Hughes observed. Unearthing the layers of a place can lead to topophilia, a bond we feel with its emotion, memory, geography, heritage... I felt pulled instantly to places before, Scottish islands, Zambian savannas. The pull to Zambia eventually led me to live and work there. And now I feel folded into its red soils, just as I am into the red soils of Devon. But I think topophilia is different, more gradual. A slow intertwining of roots as a place becomes known to us whether instant pull or slow-burning topophilia, I've been thinking about place and why it matters. God's first words to humans were to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, near the Tree of Life. Where are you? 
They were hiding, ashamed of their nakedness. He could not find them. Where are you? In an increasingly remote and rootless age, with access to everyone and everything 24-7, yet loneliness still on the rise. Perhaps this question is one to consider anew. When borderless corporations can be more influential than governments, and when the global is often more glamorous than the quiet hush of the deeply rooted local, knowledge of and respect for place feels rebellious, but vital. Kentucky farmer and author Wendell Berry knows this. One cannot live in the world, that is, one cannot become in the easy generalising sense with which the phrase is commonly used, a world citizen. There can be no such thing as a global village. No matter how much one may love the world as a whole, One can live fully in it only by living responsibly in some small part of it. Where we live and who we live with define the terms of our relationship to the world and to humanity. I have long admired Berry's writing and his choice to care for a patch of Kentucky land. His is no bucolic rural idyll. His, for decades has been a cry for rerouting and for neighbourliness because it all turns on affection and because that is how the world is made and remade through imperfect places and the encounters in them. We are situated in a landscape and it is through this particularity that we engage with creation. We exist at the scale of human relationship in this place, amongst these people, in this time. The grass may seem greener elsewhere, but the grass here is green nonetheless. And greener still when we stare at it and get curious about it and get to know the many years and hands that have tended it and take part in tending it myself. The cornerstone of the Christian story is that Jesus came into the world as a human, and humans exist in place. In the short documentary Godspeed, Alan Torrance, a giant, kilted, red-haired Scottish man, shared that the reason he came to believe in Jesus as an adult was not because of theology or preaching, but because of the scale of the map in the back of a Bible. The map depicted the area where Jesus lived, the north edge of the Sea of Galilee. It was the same scale as the place Alan lived in Scotland. He knew that relationship and community mattered. We're not rich folk, but to me you're poor if you cannot offer hospitality. He knew that Jesus would have been found out if he were a fraud. God didn't just come into the world... He came into a place built on relationships. It wasn't theology that changed Alan's mind about Jesus. It was a map of a particular place. In the Bible, and I think in life, God, or some sense of the divine, is often encountered not only in a particular place, but in the natural world there. A garden, a burning bush, a desert wilderness. Throughout the Bible, from Genesis on, we are called in different ways to care for the natural world, to treat
treat it as a gift, to treat it as if God might be found there. But it is often the secular world that most passionately calls us to reconnect, to care, to pay attention to the natural world. I've seen this in campaigns, in popular media and in nature writing, which takes a prominent place in bookshops. It's a genre that explores the natural world, often through authors' relationship to particular places, and often touching on the numinous and unseen. The Bible could easily be classified as nature writing, or place writing, or poetry. Writing of wonder that might re-enchant us in a tired age. But instead, it is restricted to the religion or theology shelves, and its wild-rooted transcendence goes unheard by people of faith and no faith. That rooted transcendence that I see in the Bible is something I see in the places I know, too. The root of the word parish links to both neighbour and sojourner, ideas that speak simultaneously of being here and reaching beyond. My parish in Devon asks me to listen, to know, to be known, to be a neighbour. But it also asks me to use the nourishment of these deepening roots to reach, to not cling too tightly to ideas of ownership, to face the world and offer love. Berry says, I take literally the statement in the Gospel of John that God loves the world. I believe that the world was created and approved by love, that it subsists, coheres and endures by love, and that insofar as it is redeemable, it can be redeemed only by love. I believe that divine love, incarnate and indwelling in the world, summons the world always toward wholeness. The wholeness and healing of the world depends on love incarnate and indwelling. Love is not a theology or a card on Valentine's Day or any of the other packages it gets squashed into. Love created the world and has the power to keep doing so if we let it. Love dwells incarnate in a place, in the people and encounters in that place. It can be messy and confronting, as well as life-giving and transforming. We draw from and add to its deep well, and by doing so, heal the world, starting right where we are. That's why I think knowing our place is important today, because it roots us and asks us to play our part in the ongoing incarnation of love, and so in the ongoing becoming of the world. My discovering the world has included travelling and working throughout it, but now the discovery comes through a small, imperfect parish in a district in Devon that is shining and struggling all at once, where stories run deep. My husband and I, and our soon-to-arrive baby, are beginning to hear them. I feel layers of emotion, history and memory here. I am trying to invest in its hope and reality, to be present in its here-ness and now-ness. I will always love visiting new places and feel a pull to other places. 
But in this place, when I look and listen and know and be known, I find love indwelling and incarnate. It's in the hedges, the neighbours, the birds that sit and sing about, sing about things we can't hear. The communities that come together to resist placeless, loveless development. It's in the food bank, the fields, the relationships that can start off challenging, but which often soften and deepen over time and despite difference. At a time when I think God is asking us again, where are you? How good to be able to answer here in this imperfect place where love dwells. Nick says, I love reading the article drafts our contributors send us. The writing flair, the intellectual insight, the compassion. However, it's not often that I read brutal self-criticism that stops me dead. Disgraced politician and now prison chaplain Jonathan Aitken wrote for us about pride as part of our series on the seven deadly sins. One of his autobiographical paragraphs contained a sentence describing the downward spiral of his life. A descent involving defeat, disgrace, divorce, bankruptcy and jail. It is a brutal summary of his life then. Listen to the rest of the article to find out the whole story. Pride, Self-Obsessed Isolation by Jonathan Aitken The sin of pride takes us into a sea of puzzles. Its choppy waters of contradictions and cross-cultural currents can be difficult to navigate. Is pride the worst sin, as learned Christian moralists have sternly proclaimed, from Augustine to Aquinas and C.S. Lewis? Or should we applaud many popular forms of 21st century pride? Pride drives parents to encourage their children, students to strive for better results, football fans to cheer on their team, and soldiers to die for their country. Black pride and gay pride have made millions of previously ostracised people more understood and accepted rolling back yesterday's tides of bigotry and prejudice. How can the apparently good pride in these modern categories be squared with the condemnation from ancient Greek philosophers and Christian teachers down the ages that hubris or individual pride are not just bad sins, but the personification of evil? These are deep waters, Watson, as Sherlock Holmes might have said to his assistant, but they become easier to fathom if the most toxic element in bad pride is diagnosed. It is egotism with a capital E, perhaps better identified as rampant self-centeredness. Many walks of life tempt us towards self-centeredness, but some professions seem to attract more egotists than others. In this article, I will concentrate on those who make their chosen careers in the arena of public life particularly politics. I can write about this notorious minefield of pride with some inside knowledge, because this was where I spent decades of my life climbing towards the top of the greasy pole, as Disraeli described political ambition. 
It was where I had a spectacular fall from grace, plummeting from rising cabinet minister to imprisoned convict. I now describe my downward spiral of this crash as a descent involving defeat, disgrace, divorce, bankruptcy and jail. The ingredients in this royal flush of crises were caused by pride. Without recognising the fault line in my personal and political character, a common failing in many prideful people, I was climbing well on Disraeli's greasy pole in the 1990s. I was in my fifth term as an elected Member of Parliament. I had held two portfolios as a Minister of the Crown. One was Minister of State for Defence, and the other was the powerful Cabinet post of Chief Secretary for the Treasury. To make my head swell further, I was quite frequently tipped to be the next leader of the Conservative Party and as a potential successor to Prime Minister John Major. The political graveyards are littered with the long-forgotten corpses of ex-future Prime Ministers. So these transitory labels should have made a wise man humble. In fact, it did quite the reverse. A combination of what Shakespeare in Hamlet calls the insolence of office and in Macbeth, vaulting ambition which leaps itself, gave me a surfeit of hubris. Pride is the deadliest of sins, and I was bursting with it. Politically, I began to believe that I could walk on water. I took myself far too seriously, especially when I was made the target of a campaign by The Guardian. It does not matter now what The Guardian said in their attacks, because all their feelings of resentment about them have long since left me. Suffice it to say that, in a long series of articles, they made a number of allegations against me, some of which were true, some of which were untrue, and all of which were given a strongly negative spin. In the face of this campaign, I was full of prideful anger and went for the journalist's jugular. I initiated a lawsuit for defamation and announced my libel action in a ferocious television speech which contained the peroration... I will cut out the cancer of bent and twisted journalism with a simple sword of truth. These were recklessly insensitive words of pride which came back to haunt me. Where was I as a Christian when I was riding high as a politician? To put it simply, I called myself a Christian without actually being one. I was strong on the externals, I went to church regularly, I supported Christian causes and was a church warden at St Margaret's Westminster, the parliamentary church. However, I do not think I had understood the simple truth that being a Christian has little to do with external appearances and everything to do with an internal commitment to Christ's teachings. I probably bore a disturbing resemblance to the Pharisee in the Bible story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who go up to the temple to pray. Even if I did not boast about my external piety quite as loudly as the Pharisee did, the humility of the tax collector was far removed from me. I was certainly not saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Nor was I doing the will of the Father, especially when it came back to the libel case. In order to win it, I did something that was against the will of the Father. I told a lie. It didn't seem at that time a terribly important lie, at least in relation to the lies I was accusing others of telling about me. 
It was a lie about who paid a £900 hotel bill of mine at the Ritz Hotel in Paris while I had been a government minister. I told this lie. I told it on oath in my evidence in court. To my eternal shame, I even got my wife and daughter to back me up with witness statements supporting my lie. But then my opponents ambushed me in the middle of the trial with clear documentary evidence that I had told a lie on oath. My credibility as a witness was shattered. I had to withdraw the libel case, and within 24 hours my whole life was shattered. The rising cabinet minister had impaled himself on his own sword of truth with explosive and apocalyptic consequences. I was prosecuted for perjury, pleaded guilty at my trial in the Old Bailey, and by June 1999 I was in a prison van, heading for Her Majesty's Prison, Belmarsh, to serve an 18-month prison sentence. Having proved the truth of the old saying, pride comes before a fall, I had plenty of time to reflect on how it had happened, how it could have been avoided, and how I might prevent this deadly sin from resurfacing in my life. One key discovery was that pride had turned me into a self-obsessed loner. Despite an outward carapace of gregariousness and friendliness, I confided in hardly anyone, and made myself accountable to no one. Graham Tomlin hit this nail on the head in his 2007 book, The Seven Deadly Sins and How to Overcome Them, when he wrote, Pride is the most isolating of sins. The ultimate end of pride is loneliness. Once one has recognised and acted upon this wisdom, the chances of recognising and defeating the sin of pride when it tempts you are infinitely higher. I used to believe in an old line of verse by Rudyard Kipling. Down to Gehenna or up to the throne, he travels fastest who travels alone. Now I think differently. Conquering one's ego is no easy task. But if you make a determined effort to confide in and make yourself accountable to carefully selected friends, family members, colleagues or prayer partners, you will build, with their help, strong defences to the sin of pride. A Christian faith can be a powerful bulwark in strengthening these defences. I had never heard of, let alone participated in prayer groups, or had a prayer partner, or found a spiritual director, until after my fall from grace. God has moved in his mysterious ways to bring these friends and protectors into my life, to such good effect that I am now a contented priest and prison chaplain. Yet pride can still lurk as a dangerous enemy even among practising Christians. Pastoral ministry and preaching have their pride traps, but accountability and self-awareness can help to avoid them. If I ever receive a compliment on a sermon, I promptly recall the following story about John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. One day when he had been preaching in his home church of St Mary Woolnoth in the City of London, an exuberant member of the congregation fell at his feet as he came down the pulpit steps and gushed, What a brilliant sermon, Mr Newton! What a great sermon! John Newton responded, Thank you, sir. The devil himself told me that a few moments ago. The devil? 
as he surveys the 21st century landscape of what used to be called the Seven Deadly Sins, must be rather pleased. These days, serious sinning is often equated with minor rule-breaking. If you can get away with it, you will not be seen by contemporary society as a sinner. Compliance has replaced conscience as the arbiter of what is right or wrong. Yet pride remains stubbornly out there, on its own, as a different and deeper category of sin. Don't worry about the distinction between good and bad pride. They are easy to separate, because the former are non-egotistical, while the latter are toxically absorbed with the self. The French language helpfully has two different words, fierté and orgueil, to make the division clear. Orgueil, or self-centred, self-absorbed pride, is what C.S. Lewis rightly defined as the great sin, the utmost evil, the complete anti-God state of mind. Perhaps it takes a poacher who has been caught in this sin to recognise the magnitude of its destructiveness on all other relationship and on one's personal character and soul. Turning gamekeeper in order to defeat pride means spiritual discipline, accountability and prayer. Even so, the struggle against pride will always continue. Nick Jones concludes, Finally, as Christmas approaches, let's take time to listen to Erin Kreider ask what's good and bad about cancel culture. Her answer is balance the conflicting calls of justice and grace, inspired by how Joseph treated Mary. What's good and bad about cancel culture by Erin Kreider. You cannot ignore cancel culture today. In her 2022 BBC Wreath lecture, the writer Chiamanda Ngoni Adichie called it social censure. Even beyond universities and other public forums, many of us worry about the effects of cancel culture in everyday social settings. Saying the wrong thing or trying to respond well when someone else does can quickly lead to awkward family gatherings, strained meetings and broken friendships, or awaken the ever-present social media trolls. In a post-pandemic moment, when people are already struggling to re-establish healthy human interactions, cancel culture can make social engagement seem even more challenging. How can we navigate this moment well? Behind the fraught discussions and growing angst around cancel culture, we can perhaps detect something well worth preserving. Compassion. Some of the most heated controversies today involve language concerning people who have been historically disadvantaged. Genuine compassion motivates many who want society to speak more kindly, with more understanding, in order to avoid perpetuating harm to people who have already suffered. People who have been hurt deserve to be acknowledged, and that means taking their pain seriously. This compassion is an important and noble instinct. Many faith traditions call us to honour the vulnerable and pursue justice. At the same time, 
Resistance to cancel culture also includes an element of compassion. Within the voices expressing concern about cancel culture can often be heard a humble awareness that we are all prone to say the wrong thing at times. We cannot hope to learn or grow without honest risk and mutual human grace. A brief period of silence to let emotions cool can be helpful. Ending a relationship permanently seems less helpful. It might seem easier to say nothing than risk an offence, but silence out of fear of ending a relationship itself ends the relationship. Seeking to continue a difficult but important conversation can also be an important and noble instinct. Many faith traditions also encourage humble self-assessment and generous engagement with others. As the Bible records Jesus saying, Let the one among you who is without sin cast the first stone. None of us is wholly above reproach, and we all need a bit of compassionate grace. So how do we balance these conflicting calls of justice and grace? This conflict might seem peculiarly modern, but in the story we retell every Christmas, we see a young man named Joseph wondering how to balance justice with gracious concern for someone who had deeply disappointed him. Joseph is engaged to Mary, but she has been found to be pregnant. Joseph is sure the baby isn't his. In their culture, a woman who was pregnant outside of marriage brought shame to her fiancé, her family and the whole community. Matthew's Gospel tells us that Joseph was a righteous man, which means that he appreciated the demands of justice. Ignoring her situation meant ignoring the pain they all felt, papering over a grave offence which they wanted no part of. At the same time, though... The text also tells us that Joseph was unwilling to put her to shame. Like many people today, Joseph wanted to leave Mary some way to move forward with her life. But their culture did not provide people much opportunity to learn from tragic mistakes. Sometimes it can feel as if ours doesn't either. If you're familiar with the story, you already know how it ends. But it's important not to skip too quickly past Joseph's dilemma. It feels strangely modern, Joseph's desire for justice, coupled with his equally strong desire not to see someone condemned because of a single mistake. Thankfully, the story also describes a way forward from Joseph's dilemma, the baby in Mary's womb, Jesus. In Jesus, we see the depth of God's compassion for all who suffer. Jesus never ignored the painful consequences evil can create. Indeed, he allowed himself to experience the absolute worst of humanity. As an adult, Jesus was thrown out of his home village and religious community. According to the Gospels, he endured one of the most unjust trials ever recorded. Jesus was tortured, beaten and sentenced to a cruel death. When we suffer injustice, we are not experiencing something alien to Jesus and therefore alien to God. 
But there is another side to Jesus' suffering that is equally important. Jesus also demonstrates profound compassion for people who have made terrible mistakes. Jesus never misstepped or said a single cruel word, but he allowed himself to experience the full shame and isolation of being cast out of society. Crucifixion was the ultimate censure, being publicly put to death outside of the walls of the city. Yet even at this moment, Jesus demonstrated compassion for people who had harmed him. While on the cross, he forgave those who put him there. Jesus offered forgiveness to the man dying on the cross next to his own, who by his own admission deserved his fate. In contrast to aspects of cancel culture, Jesus' actions at that moment of extreme injustice tell us that human redemption is always possible. Jesus created a compassionate way forward from guilt and shame. Whatever our situation, we can find life-giving grace and healing in Christ. Compassion isn't easy. It costs Jesus dearly, and at times it will cost us too. Courageous compassion creates much-needed opportunities to heal, learn and grow. When we suffer and when we err, cruelty and failure do not get the last word. As it says in the last few pages of the Bible, Jesus is making all things new. Cancel culture ends conversations and damages relationships. But a better balance between the righteous demands of justice and the need for redemptive grace remains possible. Thank you for listening to Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If so, perhaps there's someone you're in touch with over Christmas who might enjoy it too. Maybe you could share it with them. Wherever you are and whatever Christmas looks like for you, from all at Seen and Unseen Aloud, we hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.